0: Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Aggieville Alley Cats podcast, where come rain, shine, or anything in between. We're here to deliver to you the Kansas State sporting news that you so love. I'm Ace Edwards, right alongside Connor Bautizor. And ladies and gentlemen, it's KU8 week, which is for me and many others, it's all 52 weeks of the year. But this week is special because your Kansas State Wildcats are going up against the Kansas State. Jayhawks, University of Kansas Jayhawks in the Sunflower Showdown. And if you want to include the second part, brought to you by Dylan's. (laughs) But let's just dive. We all know what this game means if you're listening to this podcast. And if you don't, it's a big one. So let's just dive straight into the 2021 stats. I have you for their record and offense. Last year, they were not a good team. They were a 2-10 and ten team with their two victories being over South Dakota and Texas. They had a 1-9 and nine record. Again, let's all laugh at Texas. 1,672 rushing yards, 3.8 per attempt. 2,218 passing yards, 6.95 per attempt. A 61.1% completion percentage, 15 passing touchdowns to 10 picks. A third down percentage of 35.8, which was 95th in the country. A red zone scoring percentage of 75.2% and a touchdown percentage of 62.5%, good for 121st in the country. 16 sacks allowed, 20.75 points per game, and then 249 points for total. So, uh, their offense, not very good at all, actually. They. And a lot of that was due to it being one-dimensional and, you know, first-year head coach, first-year OC, as many excuses as you'd like. That They had an awful offense last year. And Connor has you for defense and uh, didn't get much better.
1: Yeah, so defensively, they were giving up 42.17 points per game, 506 total points against them, 2,842 pass yards, 27 passing touchdowns, 3001 rushing yards, 40 rushing touchdowns. They had a third down percentage on defense of 54.2% allowed, which was tied for, I think, dead last in FBS. I think there's 130 FBS teams. Yeah. Um, and then their red zone percentage, they were giving up a touchdown 81% of the time, and they scored 91.4% of the time, which was 118th in the country. And 7 interceptions, 16 fumbles, 15 sacks, and a turnover differential of plus 3. So, pretty abysmal numbers there. I mean, there's really no way to sugarcoat that. Even if they did have some individually decent players, they were just an objectively awful unit across the board in pretty much every measure that you can imagine. And that might be putting it lightly.
0: Yeah. That that's definitely putting it lightly. They're the only team I've ever seen give up three thousand rushing yards in a season. Subpar, I would say subpar. Porous, <laughs> a little porous. A smidgen. Yeah, I, there's not a hole in the ship. The ship is gone and turned to atoms. But from that team last year, they are returning a number of pieces. They're returning Jalen Daniels, who's their starting quarterback, and you know they're also returning their backup and Jason Bean, who had to take over for Daniels when he was injured. They're returning Devin Neal, who's their leading rusher last year, also a really good running back, bringing back Jacoby Bryant, who was a corner who led the team in interceptions, brought back Kenny Logan, who is the best player on defense, still is, who's their leading tackler last year. They added Kai Thomas, a transfer from Minnesota, alongside Doug Emelian, another transfer from Minnesota at wide receiver, Kai being a running back. And that's pretty much it for notable returners and notable transfers in. I know I have two other names written down there, but that was written in the preseason. So
1: uh, who are they losing, Connor? Um, Well, they lost Kyron Johnson from last year as a linebacker drafted to the Eagles. Uh, they lost Kwame Lassiter, who was their top wide receiver. He graduated, I think, maybe bounced around as a UDFA a little bit. Um, they lose Jeremy Webb, who was second and passes deflected. So he graduated. Um, they lost Steven Parker, a four-star edge rusher who transferred to a card at Word. And they lost pretty much all of their receivers and tight ends With and in terms of depth. There were very few exceptions. Um, and then they also did lose, perhaps, their, the best linebacker to ever grace the Big 12 Conference, and Gavin Potter, he transferred out midseason.
0: After getting kicked off the team.
1: <laughs> yes, uh, that, that may be an important caveat. Yeah. So he would not be returning to get his ankles broken by Deuce Vaughn again this year, which is a shame, but it could have happened to anybody. So... Yeah. Yeah. Gone forever is Gavin Potter.
0: Yeah. But now we can go into 2022 and their schedule this year. They started off with a game up against a pretty bad FCS school in Tennessee Tech. They ended up winning that 56 to 10. Then ended up beating West Virginia in Morgantown 52 to 42. Beat Houston in Houston 48 to 30. Beat Duke at home 35 to 27. Ended up beating Iowa State at home 14 to 11 in what was a terrible, terrible game. Then they ended up losing to undefeated TCU 38 to 31 at home. Ended up losing to Oklahoma down in Norman 52 to 42. Lost to Baylor 35 23. Ended up beating a battered, 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 battered Oklahoma State School 37 to 16. Lost to Texas Tech 43 to 28. And then got ran for their foams up against Texas at home 55 to 14. Fun fact only 50% of KU's wins have come against bowl eligible teams, and one of those teams was starting a fourth string quarterback or a third or fourth string quarterback. That means their record against good teams that are not starting a third string quarterback is two and four, and two and five if you want to count Oklahoma as a good school. That's just a, a, a little a little fun fact for you, but Connor, what do you have on, on their stats or maybe
1: a comment on the fun fact? Um, it's honestly not shocking because, I mean, with the gift of hindsight, we can see that five-game win streak they started the season with. Isn't really that impressive. I mean, Houston is bowl eligible and a fine team, and Duke is also bowl eligible, but the ACC is probably, Pac-12 exists. It's not a very good conference. I was going to say it's the worst power five. That's a bit of an overstep. Um, although, honestly, it may, it may be top to bottom because at least the Pac-12 is a little top-heavy. But um, So, yeah, they start on a five-game win streak, but, I mean, yeah, Iowa State, again, there's ugly games everybody pretty much, like those 14-11 just utter just logs of football games. And, yeah, if you go up and down the list, they've beat teams that they're better than and they've lost the teams that they're worse than they're basically the most average football team of all time and it really balances out with their offense and defense uh, which we'll get into later but getting into their stats for this year um their record is six and five a three and five conference record they have 2209 brush yards they're averaging almost six yards per rushing attempt at 5.8 They have 2,583 passing yards at 9.16 yards per attempt, 27 passing touchdowns to six interceptions, and then 23 rushing touchdowns. They have a third down percentage of 50.4%, a defensive third down percentage of 46.4%, which is a stark improvement from last year, although still not really great. That's Um, still awful. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, it's still not good, but... Couldn't be worse. Literally, it could not be worse. Um, And then points per game, they're getting 34.82 of them uh, with a total of 383 points for and then 359 points against. um, Turnover differential of plus 6, 22 sacks. Um, Then their red zone scoring percentage for their defense, um, 82.4% of the time, they're giving up a touchdown. 57.7% of the time oh, excuse me, 82.4% of the time, they're giving up a score. And then 57.7% of the time, they give up a touchdown that's tied for 56 in the country. And then their red zone scoring percentage on offense, they're scoring 84.6% of the time and getting a touchdown 71.2% of the time, which is 64th in the country. So all in all, these are pretty much an objective step up from last year in pretty much every department that you can really measure turnover differential is kind of iffy i mean it's really not that much different honestly um but they uh definitely a better team on paper and with the eye test than they were last year granted last year and the year before were two of the worst ku teams in recent memory which is saying a lot uh so this team definitely has taken a big step up especially offensively yeah
0: Speaking of, let's go into the actual scouting report, starting off with the offensive side of the ball. In terms of scoring offense, they're 27th in the country, one spot behind an old friend, Tulane. (laughs) We can never escape them, can we? But in terms of personnel, they're, they're pretty standard as to what we're used to, except for their two tight end sets. 11 personnel is probably their base package, probably what they stay in the most. A little bit of 20, uh, 21 personnel from shotgun or pistol. They really like staying in pistol because it offers a lot of flexibility in both the option game and the, the how you can flip runs. But well, They also have a little bit of 12 personnel from an ace set, which is one tight end on each side, or twin tight end sets, which is both tight ends on one side. But whenever they're in three wide sets, They they seemingly have a love affair with with trip sets, whether it be bunch or just traditional trio trips. But whenever they really like putting all of their receivers to one side of the field and force you to give a coverage tell that way, because if you have someone cover, if you have someone covering the number three, the most the innermost receiver, if you have someone head up on him, the odds of you being in man coverage drastically increases. So it's just, it's another thing that helps. It helps with the tell. But in terms of specific play calling, their run pass split is they're running the ball 56.43% of the time and then passing the ball 43.57% of the time. And because they're a college offense in the year of our Lord, 2022, they call a lot of RPOs and they're trying to make the offense as easy as possible for the quarterback. And I know that, that some people take that as a slight towards the quarterback. That's literally just good coaching. It's not a slight. It's just good coaching. And it, because of that, that desire to make the offense easier on the quarterback, they run a lot of play action. And it's also why their offense sort of dies if you don't let them establish the run. That's why they only put up, like, I think it was, that's why they put up so little against Iowa State because they couldn't get the run fully established also why they couldn't really get anything going against Texas. But by that point, that was that game turned into a garbage time game real quick. So, Connor, what do you have in terms of what they specifically call in the running and passing games?
1: Yeah. So starting with the running game, um, they do a little bit of everything in the running game, um, although they're kind of known for their outside zone tendencies. They still do quite a bit, Um they do slightly prefer concepts that really don't put a lot of pressure on their offensive line. There's a reason for that, and so they primarily are doing inside and outside zone, a little bit of veer. Um, they like they still keep their wide lead read option the playbook, but it is not their entire running game anymore like it was last year when they played OU. Um, they have run a bit of triple option, um, but uh, that was mainly earlier in the year. Um, And then the passing game, a lot of RPO short stuff, uh, stick routes, slants, and flats. Um, And then they prefer to have their passing concepts to have a moving pocket um, to eliminate uh, their line having to traditionally pass block as much. Um, Then their concepts, they break down um, roughly like this, um, which is their, their... big money concept is their tight end motion leak seam um, where the tight end motions from way alignment to the opposite side, play action fake is given, and the tight end just goes up the seam and does tight end things. Um, if you've watched KU play a game this year, you have almost certainly seen them run this and wonder, wow, how did the tight end get so wide open? Yeah, they they really love that concept for that reason. Uh, yeah. Slot fade vertical uh, from trips, uh, the one wide receiver runs a curl, two runs a fade, three runs a go. Um, roll sale, three receiver from trips runs a deep out, one and two both run goes to clear the zone. And then they like spacing where everybody's just running a, a short curl or a stick. Um, play action, uh, 45.05% of their dropbacks. Uh, they absolutely love play action, and that's why they need to establish the run is because of how much they rely on play action for their passing concepts to really be effective Um, and how much of that is the reason that their uh, passing game works as well as it does. Um, Screens, uh, that's 9.4% of their dropbacks. And then, of course, they love motion. Ace was saying earlier that they really like uh, to get coverage indications and try and figure out what you're doing. Um, And then motion is a huge part of that. Uh, specifically, tight end motion, orbit motion from the wide receiver, because they want to be able to figure out if you're in a manner or so.
0: Yeah. So uh, a lot of the offenses, and credit to their to KU's offensive coordinator, he's he's very good at just scheming one guy open. Like if it's to the point where if he wants someone to get open, and if you're playing zone coverage, die literally die there's nothing you can do because he will get that one guy open and not to step on the toes of a later point in fact actually i don't think i bring it up but the i think the best way to probably beat this team is to just play tight man coverage and don't let themselves don't let yourself get caught up in a lot of motion don't follow the motion in the running game because it's not going to go that way but now we can talk about their quarterback, who is number six, Jalen Daniels, returning from injury. He has 1,302 passing yards, a 66.4% completion rate, 13 passing touchdowns to two picks, 347 yards on the ground and five rushing touchdowns, an 81.2 PFF grade, 84 in the pass, 61.6 in the running game, an adjusted completion percentage of 703 And we have another middle field merchant, which makes sense given that it's a play action offense that's explicitly meant to destroy linebackers who aren't disciplined in coverage. So 60.2% of his passes are over the middle and his deep accuracy is actually quite good. It's above average at 45.88 per completion, a 45.8 completion percentage, I should say. Fun fact about Jalen Daniels, despite at one point being a Heisman contender, he only threw for 300 yards one time before getting hurt and only rushed for more than 100 yards once. And those were both in separate games. In fact, despite starting one more game than Jason Bean, Jason Bean, his backup, has thrown for 200 or more yards two more times than Jalen Daniels. You may be asking, what am I trying to say here? I'm trying to say that he's a little bit overrated
1: yeah uh that is fair i that's a fair assessment to make uh especially considering that he was a heisman contender at one point which in hindsight is a little ludicrous um i think a lot of that was just kind of people getting caught up with ku uh finally like being successful but uh i think i was a little bit overzealous um but i'll let you continue yeah
0: but now that we have Slander out of the way, we can talk about his actual skill set, which he's to TLDR, he's a fine quarterback. He has all right arm strength and he can get some pretty decent zip on the ball. It's not a lead arm strength. I'd say if we're going by pure percentile, I'd say he's probably like in the like 55th to 60th percentile of arm strength in college football. He doesn't have a noodle arm, but it's not a great arm either. His best trade is by far his decision making. And you know, I, we talked a lot about how the offensive coordinator, his job is to make the decisions as easy as possible, which is why Jason Bean, who is not great as a passer, that's the reason why they only have six interceptions. He only threw four in the games that he played. But Jalen Daniels, even outside of the scheme, he's always been a pretty solid decision maker, unless he's told to throw a backside screen, but that's a shame that could have happened to anybody. But yeah, um, he's he's just not wrong very often. He's very good at identifying matchups, knowing where the ball is going, and he's good at that. He's also a plus athlete from a running standpoint, but he does prefer to use his mobility to extend passing plays rather than just tuck it and run. He's he's not a one read and go quarterback. He's someone that's going to use his legs first and foremost to try and extend plays through the air. And I think that's why a lot of people got caught up on him is because he, he is objectively exciting to watch, but you know, accuracy is also pretty consistent though. It isn't pinpoint accuracy. He's not going to drop throw. He's not going to drop the Will Howard throw against West Virginia. That's not his game. He's going to get the ball where it needs to be. And it's going to be in the general vicinity. So again, TLDR, He's a perfectly fine quarterback that has a great ability to extend the play and make splash plays because of his ability to extend plays. He's exciting to watch, but that's other than that, he's a perfectly serviceable, fine Big 12 quarterback. Would he, in fact, I'd probably put him right now in the like that second to third tier of big 12 quarterbacks with tier one being max duggan and 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 just max duggan but it maybe will howard but (laughs) that's neither here nor there i i said a lot of words so you can cover the running backs and the first two receivers if that sounds splendid
1: that does sound splendid actually so
0: splendid
1: yep Okay. (laughs) Uh, so getting started with the running backs the the guy in that room is Devin Neal number four chances are you already know who Devin Neal is Uh, he started last year as I think a true freshman and maybe a retro freshman but uh, he he was the lead back and has been the lead back all year uh, it's got a thousand and two yards on the year, 6.5 yards per attempt and seven touchdowns as well as 17 catches for 150 yards. So he's had a really, uh, really nice season. Um, he also was a uh, fantastic in two straight games against Oklahoma state and Texas tech, where he had 190 yards or better in both of those weeks. So that has heavily contributed to uh his uh rushing numbers uh those two particular games um his pff grade is 76.5 uh 60.2 in the past game 80.6 in the run game Devin nail's good he's a very good running back uh, he has really good speed which uh is he has better speed than i think you would expect for 5'11 to 10 and his build um and his acceleration is really good too um, he makes severe cuts uh really quickly um, he has solid vision as well and presses the line. Um, he does get a little bit dancy at times when at times it may be better for him to just put his head down and run. And of course, there's a lot of other guys in that room too. They kind of rotate through like Kai Thomas and um, uh, Sevian Morrison. Uh, Daniel Hyshaw was in that group. He got injured against Iowa State, I think like that. He was pretty good. Yeah. Um, but yeah, Devin Neal is pretty much the name to know at running back right now. Uh, then you get to receivers. Uh, you got Lawrence Arnold, number two. Uh, and then also I'll cover Luke Grimm, number 11. Uh, one note about those two, uh, both of them, they're both excellent against zone coverage, uh, and they're really good at having a feel for when to sit uh to just to allow themselves to get open just and find a spot, like the soft spot, the zone. Uh, both of those guys have a really good sense for that. Lawrence Arnold, uh, so far the series got 32 catches for 571 yards and four touchdowns. A 75 on PFF, 77.9 the pass game, a 5.9% drop rate. He is a very good separator, but not much of a contested catch guy. But he's still a solid athlete um, at receiver. And there's not a whole lot else to say about him. I, I mean, he's he's a good athlete. There's a lot to like about Lawrence Arnold, but um, he's got a decent size. He's young, 6'3", 200, uh, as a sophomore. But at the end of the day, he's he's good, but not um, unbelievable. Uh, then you have Luke Grimm. He's got 39 catches for 408 yards and five touchdowns. Uh, 77.1 on PFF, a 77.5 pass game. He has not dropped a pass, according to PFF, this year. Um, he... Um, is a a very frustrating receiver to scheme against um, because he will just magically be open a lot of the time. And a lot of that, again, goes back to just having a really good intrinsic understanding of zone coverage and knowing where to sit and just how to kind of like sift through it and uh, find yourself open. Um, Very, very consistent receiver, a blue collar lunch pail kind of guy <laughs> he's such a deceptive hard worker speed. yeah he has deceptive speed um just yeah, a really hard worker receiver for no particular reason at all just very very solid <laughs> yeah I, I there's not a ton to say about luke grim other than he is a solid receiver he's experienced he's in his third season of playing time and he's been very consistent throughout that time as well um so you know this isn't anything new uh, for him. Same with Lawrence Arnold. He played a decent amount last year. You know, these these guys aren't you know brand new or anything like that. But um yeah, that, that does it for those two. So Ace, you've got the last receiver and then the tight end.
0: Yep. The last receiver is Quentin Skinner. He has 25 catches, 436 yards, and five touchdowns, a 70.1 PFF grade, 71.0 in the past. He's also not credited with a drop this year. And as his yards and his yards per catch would make you guess, he's the deep threat slash gadget guy. And I truly believe that at this point, I think this is, I think someone else has said this because I know I've seen it before. But if you don't have a gadget guy, you're doing yourself a disservice nowadays in modern college football. And Quentin Skinner is that gadget guy. He has that legit speed to blow by you. And the speed is what the majority of his game is based off of because his he's not going to wow you with his route running. He's going to make you so scared of his speed that you're going to want to take an extra step back. And that extra step back is all he needs on like curl routes or ends. But that being said, his his route tree is kind of limited. The majority of the routes I saw him run were were go balls and curls. So, you know, that's just his routes, though. Uh, And his releases are unproven. But as a gadget guy, he's set in motion like 85% of the snaps he's on his field. That is hyperbole. But he's set in motion a lot, so he doesn't need to get releases, really. But... He's also the guy that they're going to send in motion on like jet sweeps, going to use him as the triple option guy in orbit motion. Quentin Skinner is, as we've said, the kind of the gadget guy. So if you see him in motion, he's probably the one person that you genuinely do need to worry about if he goes into motion, because the ball might be going to him, but now we can talk about their tight end Mason Fairchild. He has 25 catches, 322 yards and five touchdowns, a 70.7 PFF grade 82.4 in the pass, 49.8 in the running game as a run blocker. And he also doesn't have any drops this year. So that is their top. That is three of their top four receivers who do not have a drop credited to them this year. Remarkably consistent unit, but uh, the thing on Mason Fairchild is for no reason, and I do mean no reason. He is the best seam ball tight end that I have ever seen in college, and there's no reason for him to be that good at it. <laughs> that that's basically the majority of his skill set is he is a seam ball tight end, and he is so remarkably good at that role that he almost doesn't need to do anything else. Because as a run blocker, he's not good, and you know, that's why he plays Y-Flex a lot. That's why he's that isolated tight end, similar to what we've started doing with Ben Sinnott and what we've seen throughout him the entire year. I don't think he's as good at Ben Sinnott. I don't think he's as well-rounded as Ben Sinnott, but he's definitely better up the seam, and that's why they scheme up that seam ball to him. But Mason Fairchild, at the very least, is another reliable receiving weapon at tight end, even if he is just really that that why true receiving tight end and he also has pretty decent speed at that position which you again expect from a true Y tight end Connor it is now your turn to discuss the offensive lines left side and center
1: all right so first of all a general note about the offensive line they've given up pressure on 27.65 percent of their drop backs but have only allowed eight sacks. So make of that what you will. Uh, Because Jalen Daniels has only been sacked three times this whole year, which granted he has missed a lot of time, but that's still pretty remarkable. Um, And a lot of that just has to do with their scheme, which is get the ball out quickly and don't rely on the offensive line, which they did a lot of that last year, honestly. Um, So that's nothing new. But at left tackle, uh, they have Earl Bostic Jr., number 68, um he has a 63.1 bff grade a 74.6 pass block grade and a 57.8 in the run block he has a weirdly good first step in the run game and he starts pretty low as well um but despite having a good start in the running game he's really not a fantastic run blocker at all um other than when he's blocking down he is really really good at that but that's about the extent of his ability um when it comes to run blocking um he does also have a really big tell on outside runs he immediately steps outside and waits in space instead of engaging uh if you see this widen out to seal the play he won't contest it um that and he's a little bit sluggish in his kick sets with pass protection but all in all he's a, a pretty solid pass blocker which is what you want out of your left tackle so Good, good for Earl, I guess. Um, a left guard, you have Dominic Poonie, uh, number 67. Uh, he has a 68.7 PFF grade, a 77.5 pass block, and a 66.6 6 run block game. Spooky. I watched him lose a rep to the Texas defensive lineman that fell to his knees. That is a shame. and uh, It's more of a fun fact than anything. Uh, it's okay. kind of like, it's kind of like Duffy last year when he tripped on a yard line and won a rep against a, <laughs> a edge rusher for Southern Illinois. That's not emblematic of either of their skill sets. It's just something that happened, <laughs> and it, it just is remarkable. Um, he is a uh, pretty solid as a mover when he pulls, um, and then the zone game he doesn't really move fast enough to steal his gap, uh, so. If a run play just instantly fails um, and is unsuccessful, there's a good shot that it was him just not being fast enough uh, to seal his gap. And then at center, you have Mike Nowitzki, number 50, a 66.2 PFF grade 59.5 pass block, a 66.5 run block. He is very susceptible to a straight bull rush from a, uh, from a nose tackle, and that goes... For both the running game and the passing game as well, which is fascinating because in the past we have seen that issue with some K State offense or some K State centers, but a lot of times because they're undersized. Now, six, 6'5, 300 pounds. So I don't know where that's coming from, but it is happening for some reason. Um, and then he, uh, um, it's It's entirely possible to push him all the way to the quarterback in like two and a half seconds. And beyond that, he's just, he's fine. He He's generally not noticed um, as a center. He just, he can really get bull rushed into oblivion. Beyond that, he doesn't really do anything remarkably bad, doesn't really do anything remarkably good. It is what it is with him pretty much. Yeah.
0: the right side of the line starting off with right guard michael ford jr number 54 is a 63.3 pff grade 57.8 pass block 63.5 run block and his biggest problem is the lack of strength really i'm not saying he's weak by normal person standards but by right guard standards he's he's certainly not strong and a lot of that comes to bite him even on zone plays where you don't think oh you think he needs to be a lateral mover you still need to have a pretty decent degree of strength because he can get punched back near immediately into the running back's lap and force a cutback. It's one of the few times that in the zone, it's one of the big weaknesses of the zone game is that if one of your guards is getting just decimated, it instantly forces a cutback and removes the need for a force defender way outside. So that's another number in the box. And that's unfortunately what Mike, well, actually, fortunately for me, because I hate KU, that, that's quite a that's quite a unfortunate thing for KU. He also has the problem for waiting for the play to come to him in the running game, which really makes him easy to abuse. And again, a lot of it a lot of his issues comes down to functional strength. He's an all right mover. he's fine at that, but he just he doesn't have that core strength, doesn't have the leg strength doesn't he, he doesn't have that one area that you can really call as his own that he's great at and then the right tackle is i am not joking bryce Cabledo. that is his name number 77 is a 53 pff grave 48.1 pass block 54 point run block uh 54.4 run block and he is among the worst pass protectors on specifically inside moves that i have ever really watched And the only exception would be Texas Tech's left tackle last year.
1: You know, the one that got sent to Tampa, Florida by,
0: by Felix.
1: (laughs) That, that is not the type of company you want to be keeping as an offensive tackle. No.
0: And a lot of that comes down to the fact that he just, if you attack his inside shoulder, he doesn't know what to do. he, he likes setting the outside. He likes speed rushers. This would be a uniquely bad matchup for Nate Matlick, for example, which I think probably Nate Matlick or Brendan Mott's the person that's lined up on him because I think we we keep Felix to the left side. But he, and even then, he's not great to the outside. He's just not a good pass blocker, which makes sense as a right tackle, but you'd think he'd be a better run blocker. Uh, no, <laughs> he's... He's probably the worst mover of all of them, which again, right tackle, you want him to be a mauler, but not in a zone scheme. And even in the power scheme, he's just, he's not great. And and that's really all that can be said. Like if I had to compliment one part about his game, it's that he's not going to vomit on his shoelaces in zone schemes where he's just asked to seal, but like, that's it's not saying much <laughs> like if, if your best trade is you can get in the way sometimes i'm sorry you're not that great
1: that is an absolute shame i that is better than the tech left tackle from last year to be fair but that is not a high bar to clear in fact the the bar is underground in in nope. that
0: regard so. The, the bar is in the center of the earth and yet he is somehow limboing with the devil right now. So. I... <laughs> well, yeah. But you, you have it. the, the defensive,
1: <laughs> you have the first bit of defense. All right. So yeah, defensively um, this unit, while they are technically better than last year, that that's also a technicality because they couldn't really get worse um they are tied for 119th in the country in total defense 114 and scoring defense uh they're 113 in rushing yards allowed per game at 190.1 they're 108th in pass yards allowed per game at 262 flat um they actually do run a 335 we've been saying they run a 425 for like the entire season that's not true they do run a 3-3-5, three, three, but they do occasionally slide into a 4-2-5 uh, from an over. Um, so, sorry, I guess. But, and then they Good also – Yes, it, it was not on purpose, probably. But they sent okay. a lot of blitzes, mostly from the linebackers, um, and they run a lot of stunts as well to get pressure. Um, kind of a similar scheme to what Georgia did last year. We're not comparing to to Georgia. It's just what Georgia did. They are obviously significantly worse, but um, it, it's where the majority of the pressure is based off people doing their job rather than being unbelievable. I guess um, it, it's just that Georgia happened to be able to do both because they had the good scheme and also the five-star athletes to go with it. So, and then also better coaching. Yeah,
0: there, I I'll take personnel and then the first two uh the the third interior guy is so short that i can i can take it not literally but the the write- up but in terms of, of personnel like we said it's that that 335 playing with a four-man surface on the line so that tight front or odd front whatever you want to call it i think most of it depends on where that backside tackle lines up but that's kind of hard to see from a sideline angle it's one of the two it's probably probably tight because that's what everyone runs, but in terms of coverages, they play a lot of single high safety man coverage. And of course zone own coverages mixing with flavor. I I'm non-committal on which one is more, which one is more common, but you know, it, it's not like last year to where I literally couldn't tell what coverages they were playing because I'm not sure they were playing coverages. <laughs> I, they, they just were out there existing on a football field. They've improved from last year in every sense. But now we can talk about the interior defensive line, which is led by three people, number 98, Caleb Sanson, number 93, Sam Burt, and number 11, Eddie Wilson. Starting off with Caleb Sampson, he has a 19 tackles, three and a half TFLs, two and a half sacks, a flat 69 PFF grade, 65.7 run defense, 34.8 tackling, and 68.1 pass rush. And his worst problem is that he's he just does a bad job of holding gaps in the running game because he gets sealed instantly. And then the running back and then the linebackers are just left out to dry, which is a shame. That shouldn't be what's happening, especially with a a 3-3-5 scheme that really prioritizes getting at least one linebacker free, especially in a tight front. But Caleb Sampson just doesn't hold the line that well in that regard but he does have a pretty solid swim move that he pulls out almost exclusively in run reps okay and in pass rush he just doesn't use the swim move too often he just tries to go for the bull rush which given how quick he is with the swim move probably shouldn't be his strategy and it's not like he's weak or anything it's just his bull rush isn't terribly effective next up is sam burt he ended up getting hurt in the texas game his status is unknown and 18 tackles one and a half tfls a 59.5 pff grade 61.3 run defense 62 tackling 52.7 pass rush Uh, when he's playing three technique he's bad at holding his ground you're beginning to notice a theme and when he's put on the tackle he improves drastically so if he's a four or five technique he he gets a lot better, like a four eye, four, you know, four eye, four, five. Somewhere on the tackle, he gets a lot better. And it's mostly because he isn't getting decimated when he lines up on tackle. Note how I didn't say that he was really standing his ground amazingly. It's just that he isn't instantly getting just waxed. But outside of that, he's just mid. He's aggressively mid. And then Eddie Wilson, he's probably my favorite player on this entire KU team because he wears glasses and there's no other reason. He has 17 tackles, one and a half TFLs, 64.4 PFF grades, 70.5 run defense, 32.9 tackling, 55.5 pass rush. And as I mentioned, he's bespeckled. He is a bespeckled individual. And maybe because the glasses are giving him power, he's probably their best defensive lineman. He's just very good. He's the one lineman that isn't terrible at holding his ground. And he's also the one that's able to split double teams with a pretty good degree of consistency. Like he he's a pretty technically sound defensive lineman. And that's about it. Like <laughs> he's he's good. He's not top five that we've seen this year, but he's good.
1: I like the word bespectacled. That's like the main thing I took out of that entire thing. Is bespectacled,
0: yeah, it's a real word.
1: I believe you. <laughs> <laughs> at least, at least, word says it's a real word. Yep. So, moving on to Edge, I uh, got two guys. Um, starting with number 99, Malcolm Lee, uh, 26 tackles, two and a half tackles for loss, and a sack, 67.2 PFF grade, 69 run defense grade, a 53.8 tackle grade. And then a 61 and the pass rush. He is fast. That's all. Yeah. He's fine. Uh, 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 There's really nothing else to really write about with Malcolm Lee. Um, And then you get to Lonnie Phelps, number 47, 48 tackles, nine and a half tackles for loss and six sacks. He got off to a very hot start, uh, this season, he had three sacks, I think, against Tennessee Tech and then had a streak of three weeks in a row with a sack. However, he's not recorded a sack since October 8th. Uh, he has a 74.5 PFF grade, 71.3 run defense grade, 74.8 tackle grade, and an 81.9 pass rush grade. Um, when he plays from the edge, he is not a particularly good force defender. He lets himself get sealed and doesn't push the guy forward. He doesn't play with a ton of strength. Um but he has a really good first step to the outside in the pass rush, but doesn't really have any other counters uh which is why he hasn't recorded a sack in a while, most likely it's just because he is pretty one dimensional as a edge rusher and a pass rusher so uh yeah he started out really hot this season, but has notably cooled off um over the last uh over a month at this point so. Yeah, he's he's definitely been a dry spell.
0: Yeah. yeah, they're they're not great, but mm. moving on to their linebackers, number thirty, Rich Miller, and number six, Taiwan Berryhill, another all-time name. General theme: both are overly aggressive and bite forward on literally everything, and they're both really good athletes. It, it, they are pretty much the epitome of l- athletes playing linebacker, and they haven't really. I'm not sure how far along both of them are in their careers, but they play like really young linebackers who don't have a a ton of experience. But starting off with Rich Miller, he has 79 tackles, three TFLs, one sack, and one pick. He has 53.9 PFF grade, 56.1 run defense, 71.9 tackling, 59.4 pass rush, and a 52.5 coverage grade. And when he's kept clean, he's a perfectly good linebacker. It's perfectly fine uh note how I say when kept clean because when he's not he's he's bad so basically he is a freakishly athletic Blake Martinez which I I know may slightly hurt if you're a Packers fan or a Giants fan or a Raiders fan but he's Rich Miller he just flows to the wrong side of the play on counters as well and a lot of that I again I Connor, did you, did you find how, how young or old they are?
1: Uh, yeah. Uh, Barry Hill's a junior. Rich Miller is a senior.
0: Oh, so they, they're just bad. Okay, cool. They're not young. They just yeah. suck. Got it. <laughs> I, I... <laughs> pretty Oops. Pretty
1: much. Pretty much.
0: Yeah. They, they're just really overly aggressive and they don't need to be, but. Next up is Taiwan Berry Hill. He has 37 tackles, five TFLs, two sacks. He's obviously the one they send on a lot more blitzes. 56.2 PFF grade, 52.8 run defense, 53.6 tackle, 61.2 pass rush, and 60.4 in coverage. And again, he gets way too aggressive playing the run and he just abandons his gap and leaves a lot of wide open space. And granted, a lot of that could be argued because his defensive line is doing him no favors. So he feels like he has to get out of his gap because if he stays in it, he's going to get blocked. So it's a, it's a doomed. If you don't doomed, if you do scenario, but again, both of these guys are just athletes playing linebacker. They're not great. They're both fine tacklers, I guess, but yeah, they're, the linebacking room is probably the worst room on the defense. And you can kind of tell that they are the ones that a lot of teams are scheming, like, all right, we can bully these guys. Let's do it. But you
1: have the corner room. Yep. So starting out with corner, you have number 15, Craig Young. He isn't actually listed as a corner on the roster. He's listed as a linebacker. Um, Which, again, that is also partially because he's a slot guy that doubles as the third safety. So he's just kind of a football player, I guess, is the best way to put it. Um, He's an Ohio State transfer, um, plays the slot, and acts as the third safety. Um, 50 tackles, four and a half tackles for loss, three and a half sacks, one interception, two pass breakups, and three QB hurries on the year. 68.8 PFF grade, a 67.4 run defense grade, 74.8 tackle grade, 80.2 pass rush, and a 65.4 coverage grade. Um, He's giving up catches 76.1% of the time that he is targeted, um, and he gets sent on a lot of corner blitzes, and a lot of that is because he is effectively an edge rusher already. So it makes sense that he would be good at it because he's 6'3, 230 pounds. So no wonder he is good at corner blitzes because that's what he should be doing, anyways. Um, yeah. He, mo- he mostly uh, just does a, a good job, though, of disguising. Uh, and then when he works, around, when he needs to get around blocks, he's very quick. Um, Coverage wise, he's fine, which, again, he is kind of not exactly probably where he should be playing, but it, uh, it, it is what it is. He, isn't an active liability but he's okay um
0: then also interesting that sorry it's interesting that pff lists him as a corner and ku lists him as a linebacker
1: but like i get it (laughs) yeah he he is both he's neither and both at the same time but yeah he so moving on to number three romello dotson Uh, He's got 48 tackles on the year, one tackle for loss, two interceptions, five pass breakups, a 63.1 on BFF, a 64.1 run defense grade, 57.5 tackle grade, 71.6 in the pass rush, and a 63.4 coverage grade. Uh, He's a very good athlete, and he can snap into routes at their break pretty much at will. Um he uh does need to be square though for that to happen and he can get baited uh into opening a little bit too early on a break but he isn't going to get beat that badly um and then lastly you have jacoby Bryant, number two or kobe Bryant as he goes by um mm-hmm. 33 tackles on the year half a tackle for loss three interceptions eight pass breakups um I guess he kind of defaults to the number one corner. It feels like he's the one that gets the most attention, um, at yeah. least on broadcast as being their corner. Um, at least one of those interceptions was like kind of like a, a laughable one for Max Duggan, yeah, because it was like at the end of the half. I recall the Mickey um, Mouse interception, pretty much, yeah. <laughs> but, yeah, he has a 66.9 grade on PFF, 57.8 run defense grade, 66.2 tackle, and a 68.9 in coverage. And um, He can get himself turned around pretty badly on some plays, um, which a lot of his problems is that he doesn't like playing square uh, to his man, um, especially off motion. He'll shade to one side, and he isn't athletic enough to compensate if the route goes the opposite direction. Um, but if he's able to guess what direction they're going, um, then he uh, he actually is pretty sticky in a uh, in, in man coverage. That is, um, but yeah, Kobe Bryant he's pretty solid. Um, both of their corners are fine, and they're young. They're both sophomores, so uh, I guess they're they're hopeful for the future of that position. But yeah, that does it for the corners. So now you get uh, the safeties
0: which is by far the best room on this defense. It's made up mostly of Kenny Logan, number one, and OJ Burrows, number five. Starting off with Kenny Logan, he has 90 tackles, one TFL, two I, two picks, three pass breakups, and one forced fumble. I'm not even going to read his PFF grades because they're stupid. I, I, don't, I, I don't get why PFF hates Kenny Logan because Kenny Logan is probably their best player on defense overall. He was last year, he still is. And I guess the only reason why his grades would be so low is because he's involved in every single play, but he's not always the one making it. So like they probably see him as like, oh, he was in on the play, but he didn't make it. Well, guess I have to ding him for that. Like, okay. (laughs) But the fact that he's always around the play is what makes him the best player on the defense. And he's a good tackler, he's good in run support as Considering how he's mostly a free safety, but his biggest flaw is when he's left alone in coverage. But even then, it's not like he's—it's not like there's something running down his leg whenever he instantly, you know, puts gets put into coverage. He's fine when he's put into one-on-ones, but that shouldn't be his game. He's generally a really, really good safety, and so is O.J. Burrows, his running mate. And she has 37 tackles, half a TFL, one pick, three pass breakups, 75.8 PFF grades, 66.5 run defense, 60.2 tackling, and then a 77.8 in coverage. His bigger strength is working downhill. And because of that, he's a really good complement to Kenny Logan. And like a lot of good safeties, you don't notice him much because you either have to be like a top five safety and the reason your defense works to get noticed or you have to be hilariously bad to get noticed. OJ Burrows is neither. He's a great safety, but he's not a game changer. He's a legitimately good player that I could see getting legitimate Sunday snaps alongside Kenny Logan, but I don't think that he's a world beater. But yeah, that is KU's scouting report and now we can go into the stories going into the game and first and foremost it's the Sunflower Showdown baby so who wants it more I really think that this will probably turn into a game of who wants it more so balls in your coat who do you think wants it more
1: that's a great question I think it's honestly up in the air on who actually wants it more because both teams have pretty convincing reasons um the first starting with ku they obviously want it because it's been 14 years since they've won and i think that they're probably sick of losing and this is their best team in a while so they probably have a lot of motivation to win their last week of the season uh try and get a better bowl game um and then keep k-state out of the big 12 title potentially um, so there's that. Um, but then okay, say on the other hand, it's pretty much a win and you're in, because I don't expect Baylor to beat Texas. So I I, I see it as a must-win, uh, regardless. And I mean, you don't want the you don't want to lose the streak, you don't want you, you don't want to be known as like the team that lost the streak. You are gonna be on national broadcast. Um, so and there are a lot of people will be watching. Um and in K State you have to establish uh yourself still even with KU uh, improving, you still have to come out and show that you're the the king of the hill uh for football in the city of Kansas. So I'd say I lean K-State just with the Big 12 title on the line. I think that's a better motivator than like going to like the guaranteed rate bowl instead of the Liberty Bowl. Like <laughs> but I uh, I'm not sure. What do you, what do you think?
0: I I think the answer to me is it almost has to be K-State. And the main reason that I say that is because of how many more Kansas kids we have on this roster and how many kids that we have, you know, that, that grew up watching this rivalry. And you have kids from Lawrence that are playing. You have people like Jackson Ean. If he plays, he'll be motivated. You have a starting corner, Echo Boydo, who I have a feeling hates KU. And you get kids like Felix, who grew up in the KC metro area like I did. And he probably, he might be one of the few people that hates KU just as much as I do, because for the same reasons, at least, because he grew up an MU fan just like I did. And now he goes to K-State. So, you know, like I, the amount of Kansas kids on this roster uh, to, to gank a line from, one of the most overrated things in history. It, it, it just means more to, to the kids on K-State's roster. That's not to say it means nothing to KU. Obviously it does. But I think that that's a really big motivator for K-State because the majority of our roster is either from Kansas, from Missouri, or just generally from the area and grew up watching this game and grow up enjoying this rivalry. And that's why I have the at least emotional advantage to the Cats, not even withstanding Big 12 birth, like an Arlington birth being
1: on the line. All right, so next story to watch. Can K-State's defense uh, defend one of the most creative offenses in the country?
0: That's the question, isn't it? And I really think that if we are to contain this div- this offense, the blueprint that we need to follow is Iowa State. Because we don't have the athletes to out-athlete them like Texas did. And we don't have the 100% scheming capacity that Baylor has. We're kind of in the Goldilocks zone between the two of them. So to me, I think that the... I think that the blueprint needs to be Iowa State. I and obviously because I think that we're a considerably better team offensively than Iowa State. If we can if we can replicate maybe 50% of what Iowa State did to this this offense, I'll walk away happy. This is an offense that's going to get theirs. Absolutely. But I feel somewhat confident that. Although they're going to get theirs, I don't think it
1: ever gets out of hand. Yeah, I'm kind of with you on that. For for one, they do love their misdirection, um, their play action, and trying to set you up to leave somebody wide open for a huge explosive play. I think last year that probably works better against last year's defense, a bit more than this year, because that's something we saw a lot with last year's defense was a lot of attempt to trick plays. And this year, I feel like we haven't really seen that as much. I feel like we've been a little bit more disciplined in that department. Um, So I, I I think maybe we uh, forced them to play a little bit more straight up. Um, And I, I, I'd say that I would feel a lot more confident um, if we were healthier, um, especially in the safety room. But I, I I still like our defense uh, in this game. I, I, I still have a lot of faith in them. Yeah. So that leads to the next
0: question of how much does the safety injuries hurt K-State in this game?
1: I think we've probably give up one big explosive play. Um, that's just objectively the safety's fault. And other than that, it'll maybe be like a handful of like larger chunk plays, like 15, 20 yards. But I'm hoping that another week of preparation helps. Um, Josh Hayes has been nails all year, other than the West Virginia game, and so I think that he'll be a guy to watch this week. Uh, Cheatham, I think, uh, he needs to really step up, and then we're just gonna have a revolving door. I think at the last safety spot, and it's just gonna it's gonna it's gonna take effort from whoever is on the field at that time basically to just not be noticeable. I just stay out of the way, don't mess up, don't do anything crazy and yeah. just do your job.
0: Yeah, to me it's it's that third because i I do agree with you I think Josh Hayes has a bounce back game because I really do think that that was just an anomaly and like I said, DBs have bad games that just happen sometimes. the it's the strong safety spot that I'm worried about. Because I didn't feel great when Kobe went down. But I thought, oh, you know, Sincere can fill in. And now Sincere is gone for the season. So that leaves TJ Smith and V.J. Payne as the two safety options that have played consistently. And then after them is Kendra Steiger. And we may actually have to see Jordan Perry. (laughs) If it gets bad, we may have to see Jordan Perry.
1: Yeah, you're you're past BJ Payne and the Kendra Steiger. You're looking at names like yeah, Jordan Perry, Max Marsh, um, Matthew Mashmeyer. Matthew Mashmeyer, yeah. Beyond that, it's it's kind of question marks, honestly. I I can I could honestly
0: see a world where we go to a more traditional nickel. I really do, where we have Jacob Parrish probably playing in the slot because I think Omar is probably a better outside corner but cuz Parrish has the twitch athleticism but I that that third safety spot that strong safety spot that is a concern for me a, a big concern
1: yeah so can K state's defensive line keep itself uh, in the play against an offense that wants to just completely eliminate line play
0: yeah, I do. And I, I I think it's specifically going to be ends because I, I look at what Mott did last week with a lot of quarterback running game and a line that just kind of wanted to get in the way with it for a running quarterback. I think that uh, Huggy Bear is unfortunately probably not going to have a particularly great game just by virtue of what this defense is or what this offense is. But I could see like a Matlick having a good game, Mott having a good game. Felix will probably try and run down from the backside and get a pressure and get consistent pressure because he is Felix. But I. I think they'll keep it themselves in the play. I don't see them making the play every single time. I think that that'll, that onus kind of falls on the linebackers a little bit, but you know, I, I don't think that this defensive line is, I don't think that they're capable of being erased in a normal big 12 game.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I'm with you on that. Um, I, I do kind of agree. I think Huggy probably just his his job is going to basically be hold hold your ground as best you can, I think, in this game. Because, um, I mean, he's going to be seeing double teams basically the entire game uh, just by virtue of their offense. So I it, a lot of it is going to fall to the uh, uh, weak side uh, defensive end because uh, Felix will be getting double teams, and then you're going to have Mott slash Matlick on Cable do, and I think that's the matchup that you want to exploit, especially after Mott had a great week, which again, that presents an interesting question for KU's offensive line. Do you uh, um, just take Mott single-handed, or do you keep a running back in and lose a receiver on every passing down, just chip everybody? (laughs) So, (laughs) there's not really a perfect option there for for KU's offense. Um, But I think you have the next one.
0: Yeah. Does Jalen Daniels look good in his second game back from
1: injury after a Texas performance to forget? Um, I think he'll be fine. He'll probably throw a touchdown or two. Um, I I don't anticipate him, like, exploding in this game or anything like that. Um, Part of it is just because I don't think this is a defense that you want to see when you're trying to get back in rhythm. Granted, if there's any time to see this defense, it's now. Given how thin the safety room has gotten, but you know, even then, uh, we have been pretty good at limiting deep uh, passes um, this year. Um, Really, last week kind of uh, was an anomaly with giving up that deep throw to Sam James. Uh, But we'll uh, we'll we'll see if that continues. I imagine we'll see a lot of. Uh, really short stuff from Jalen Daniels and a lot of dink and dunk in this game from KU. Yeah.
0: I, I think he goes back to what I basically always, we always thought he was, which is a perfectly fine quarterback. I think that we see a performance pretty comparable to what we've seen from an average quarterback. Like he's, fine (laughs) i i think he is what he is and i think that he's going to get a chunk player too just because it's schemed up against us very well and you know i it's interesting because i think that he is good enough to keep them in the game i just don't think that he's good enough to basically win them the game
1: spoilers (laughs) Um, okay. Um, so moving on, uh, does the K state offense abuse what could be generously called a lackluster defense? Yes. I agree. I, I think there's too much for this defense to handle. Cause we've now seen, I think we, I mean, there's like probably six weapons that you have to worry about for this um, if you're this defense, I just don't think that there's enough power there to even attempt to, uh, to stop them. Because, I mean, you have to worry about Will's arm, Deuce's legs, Deuce through the air, Ben Sennett, Malik Knowles. I mean, even Cade Warner at this point. I think there's just too much. And then DJ Giddens, honestly, too. So I just think there is too much for the KU defense. I They're not a great unit already. I, I think that they really struggle against the K C offense.
0: Yeah. And to a note is that they really they really like blitzing. And what blitzing does is it creates a lot of one on one scenarios. And I don't think that there is a single person on KU's defense that can cover deuce. And even if there is one person, maybe Kenny Logan, that can cover Deuce, that's Ben Sinett wide open. <laughs> that's Malik getting a one-on-one when he's able to body someone that's Phillip Brooks using his speed and craftiness to get open. That's Cade Warner catching a five yard play and turning it into a nine yard game. This is an offense that prides itself on its ability to get in one-on-one scenarios. And by virtue of how much KU blitzes, at least they have before that's going to create a lot of one-on-one scenarios. So, I see this being a really big game for the K-State offense.
1: Yeah, I mean, I mean, there's there's not a lot else to really say about that. I mean, you you put it pretty well. Like, this is not a good defense, really, uh, for KU. They they just gave up 400 rushing yards to Texas, and I mean Bijan. Did even better against them than they did against us. So there's it's that saying a lot, which is saying uh, a lot. It, it is saying quite a bit. Yeah. I believe you have the next one.
0: Yep. Next up is: Can K State's offensive line show out against a middling KU defensive line?
1: Um, I'll say yes. Um, especially with uh, the interior being mainly Kansas guys, um, or all Kansas guys. Uh, I think that they show up and have a great day. Um, I think KT and Duffy both have good days against the outside rushers. And even then, um, if they bring a lot of corner blitzes, we did see in the Baylor game that Will Howard is really good at reading that and having a check down available and not panicking. And if the pressure does get home, he show he's really good at throwing it away. So I think that the offensive line should have a good day against his defensive line we did uh we have said that a few times in the past and it's not worked out as well as we hoped um but i do think that this is a game the offensive line is really going to to get excited for so i i i think the offensive line has a, a banner day
0: yeah i agree especially i i I think Cooper Beebe was watching film this week, and he, I think he was literally salivating at <laughs> thinking about what he's about to do. Lord forgive what Cooper Beebe is about to do to these people. <laughs> but there's, there's no – whenever K-State has trouble, they tend to have trouble with one person. And this defense doesn't have a Dante Stills. This team doesn't have a Siaki Ika. This team doesn't have a Moro Ajomo from Texas. And it doesn't have a Will McDonald from Iowa State. They don't have a star edge player. They don't have a star defensive lineman. The closest they have is Eddie Wilson. And as I said, he's good, but he's not a world beater. So I think that this is a day that the offensive line, they should, should be eaten good.
1: Yeah. I I buy it. Um, which of K-State's receivers has a great day? Senate.
0: <laughs> I, I'm counting Hizma as a receiver, but if you're going to make me commit to someone who has WR next to their name, I'm Cade Warner, which I know is going to sound like a strange pick, but I really do think that this corner room, they're not the greatest tacklers, and I think that Cade Warner, he may not have the most yards on the day, but he will almost certainly have the most yards after contact and may have the most consequential catches.
1: I, I, I'm I kind of tempted to say that as well. I'll go a different direction, though, um, just to differentiate. Um, I will say Malik, mainly just because of how outstanding he's been this year um, after the catch. Uh, not necessarily after contact like Cade, but after the catch. In terms of making people miss, he's been really, really good at that this year. So I am going to roll with Malik. I think he probably only has like three or four catches, but he probably gets close to 100 yards.
0: I I think that that's a great pick. Final question. Does Ben Sinnott maintain his recent insane level of play?
1: Yes. I, I think honestly, a, a, there's a lot of mouths to feed on this offense. But if you're going to pick a defense to do it against, I think this is a good one. Primarily because I can really see a world where they come in with a plan to stop somebody, like whether it be Deuce or Malik, and it ultimately just ends up opening things up for others. And as they adjust, we adjust our offensive approach and pick other people. And because I don't think this defense can cover everybody on our offense, which is so satisfying to say because it's it's not often it's case safe hands and we're able to say that we have too many weapons to cover so yeah, after years yeah, after years of having one or two at a time you know this year there there's weapons everywhere for this offense so i i i will say yes maybe not quite to the level that he has been at but i do think he has another good game with like a highlight play or like a really good effort play. Like I could totally see him having like a big, um, like second and long ish over the middle where he catches it like five yards shy and just carries the pile for the first. Like that, that seems like a Ben Simmons thing to do. So yeah. I'll say that he does that.
0: Yeah. Just copy and paste literally everything you, you said. and You have my answer. <laughs> so, now we can get into projected offensive and defensive MVPs. We both have the same offensive MVP, and that is the man, the myth, the legend,
1: Deuce Vaughn. Deuce Vaughn. Yep. I mean, this is probably his last home game as a Wildcat. Yep. So take it in, KC fans, because I mean, he's probably going to the NFL. If not what a treat but yeah. I, I i if i were him i would go to the nfl because as a running back you're not getting any younger and the longer you wait to get to the nfl the less likely it is that you get a second contract so yeah i i i think it's almost certain he goes to the nfl uh because his draft stock will not get better i hate to say it because I, I want him to stay forever I want him to stay for all five years, and then find some like weird loophole to stay a sixth year, and just make the whole Bay Twelve <laughs> mad. Skylar <Like>, Thompson <laughs> moment. Yes, yes, exactly. But I, I don't know. I, I, I think that Skylar Wildcat has said this a lot this year, and I really agree with it. And it's uh, don't take uh, these games of dues for granted because you know there's not many left at this point. There's a maximum of three games left with deuce vaughn um we're getting at least two either three maybe three uh if we make it to the baseball championship so so appreciate what we will see uh on saturday because i think he is primed for a really great game yep and the main reason i think
0: deuce is going to have a great game is because looking back at the texas game a lot of what B. John robinson did wasn't because he was this overly powerful back. It was because he was willing to press the line and then make cuts. And that is a skill set that I think Deuce Vaughn, when he's on his game, is better at than De- than B. John Robinson. I'll give all the credit in the world to Bijan John Robinson. He's the best running back in the country. He's probably going to go in the first round and maybe even go in like the top 15, just because that's how ridiculous he is as a running back. But that being said, I think Deuce... If you put Deuce in that game, he may go more for more than Bijan did. And a lot of that has to do with his skill set to bounce runs outside and to make people miss. And Deuce has traditionally done very well against KU. So that's my reason for Deuce Vaughn being the offensive MVP.
1: Yeah, good a reason as any. So we've, we both kind of... Talking about why we think Deuce Vaughn is good at football. So, <laughs> <laughs> Deuce good, allegedly. Sources are reporting.
0: <laughs> you can go first for defense.
1: Yep. Defense, I have a minorly controversial pick. I'm saying Josh Hayes. And that's mainly, it's, well, it's partly because I think we'll have a, a really good bounce back game and partly because I really want him to have a big bounce back game. Um, so, I. I think that he had an uncharacteristic game last week. He was basically responsible for all three Sam James touchdowns, although the second, the second of the three was kind of shared responsibility with him and Cheatham. Uh, I, I I, I really think that this is going to be a week for Josh Hayes to step up and become the guy in the safety room because he has to. Um, with Kobe Savage being gone, I, I'm hoping that this last week uh, showed him what he needs to do And he is able to step up and make life difficult for Jalen Daniels. Um, And it's going to be necessary to have him help uh, to shut down the outside runs. And also, it's going to be necessary for him to be able to stay home and not get beat over the top, or else KU will have a really good offensive day against us. So there's a lot riding on the success of Josh Hayes this week and the rest of the safety room. But I'm picking him as the de facto leader right now.
0: Yeah. For me, it's Daniel Green. And I think that if Jalen Daniels ever runs or, you know, tries to get out of the pocket, Daniel Green will immediately come and hit stick him. And I think the first thing that he says when Jalen Daniels is on the ground is he just screams, Remember me. Um, and you may be able to hear it from the from the stance. <laughs> and honestly, that as putting myself in the shoes of Jalen Daniels, that's absolutely horrifying. But for legitimate reasons, that is a legit reason, but he's our most athletic linebacker. And I think that you know he's going to have to have a really good game. And I think he does because of how this offense wants to have moving pockets, wants to avoid the line play. If you want to avoid the line play, that's fine. You just put it on a linebacker. So I think the linebacking room, if you could give more than one and just Be the entire room specifically. I think I'd just give it to Green and more, but I think Green's going to be more important because I think Green gets assigned to Daniels and said, Make sure he's not going anywhere. So I'm going to pick Daniel Green.
1: I think that's a really good pick. Can't go wrong with that.
0: Yep. So I have the dueling deuces as my MVPs. But now we can get into these score projections. And I recognize that I am biased. I recognize that I may hate KU more than most people on this planet. I simply don't care. I think the Cats are going to roll this game. I think KU starts off very hot. I think that they really do. I really think that they come out swinging. I think if they win the toss, they take the ball first. And if they get the ball first, they're almost certainly going to score on their first drive. I truly believe that. However, I don't think that that level of emotional football is sustainable. And I think that the cats will roll. I think the cats will roll. (laughs) Sorry. Sorry. My camera just decided to open up and let every light on earth. Either that or I just got hit with divine inspiration. But... (laughs) I have the Cats winning 48-24. to 24. I think that we score a lot because this defense is bad, and I think the, the, the K-State defense is more than capable of containing a offense that, at the very least, is very creative.
1: I've got K-State 45, KU 30. Um, I think that K-State wins fairly comfortably, but it's going to be really hard to completely shut down. Uh, the KU offense, because I mean, they really are uh, a really good unit and they, uh, their scheme is so good and so creative. So I, I don't think it's realistic to completely shut down the KU offense. Uh, it would take a lot of help from KU, honestly, to be able to shut down their offense. Um, I still have the cats winning by double digits uh, by 15. I think KU maybe puts up a little bit late, uh, on the second stringers, but cats went and cats go to Arlington.
0: Yep. Yeah. So do you have any, any final thoughts about this
1: game? Um, just that it's a huge game. I mean, it feels like, I guess that's kind of how it goes and you have a good season every game. There's just more pressure and more stakes, but, I mean, this is the highest-pressure Sunflower Showdown in a very long time. Uh, probably since the last time both teams were ranked, which I know KU's not ranked, but that's probably the, the next best option, which would have been, like, the 90s when K-State won. Uh, so I, I'm i really looking forward to this game. Uh, I'm hoping that, this, uh, that the crowd is mostly K-State because I'm sure that there's gonna be a pretty good contingent of KU fans, but uh relying on K-State fans to uh to pull up and be allowed. And also the ticket prices, last time I checked, I haven't checked for a few days, but they were absolutely nuts. I yeah. I,
0: I I don't remember exactly I think the <laughs> lowest I found was like $105 for like nosebleeds.
1: Yeah. That that was a few weeks ago. The last couple days. Um, the cheapest I saw was like uh oh like two hundred bucks. It's a little bit better now. Um like yeah, there's some upper level stuff for like 130 bucks, but still you're not getting anything for less than a hundred bucks. And like if you want to get lower bowl, you're you're going to be putting in a pretty penny for pretty much anywhere, like minimum 200 bucks anywhere in the lower bowl, it looks like. So, yeah. it's um, And the, the good news about that is that people really want to go to the game.
0: Yeah. For me, it's the, – the notes that I have are it's senior night. It's the Sunflower Showdown. It determines if K-State's going to Arlington. And this literally just hit me. This is the last K state home game that I will be attending as a student.
1: Oof, I hope it goes better
0: than uh,
1: than mine because mine was Baylor. So yeah, that that was that
0: was a toughie. But you know, i I think this is gonna be I think you may see a little bit of
1: man happiness magic in this game. I hope so. Um, ho- I'm hoping it won't even be necessary. I hope we just absolutely destroy them. Like that's the magic. <laughs>
0: oh,
1: oh, well, great. I I assumed you meant like a clutch, like come from behind or something like that. But oh, no, no, I I would I'd love a blowout. I would love to be able to not have to be worrying by halftime. Like I'd love an I'd love an Oklahoma State 2.0,
0: basically. Oh, that'd be sick. Or a Baylor 2.0. That
1: that is true. I just want to blow out. I I don't think we get one, at least not to the degree that we'd like, but it's a solid game, I think.
0: Yeah. But yeah, that pretty much wraps up this episode of the Aggieville Alleycats podcast. Thank you all so much for listening. If you want to follow or contact the show, you can follow us on Twitter at Aggieville A Cats. That's Capital A, Capital A, and Capital C and Cats. If you want to email us, we are Aggieville cats at gmail.com. If you want to follow us on a more personal note, I am at AC Edwards00. I am at Connor or Capital C, Capital B. And if you want to support the show financially, please be sure to check out the official Aggieville. Alley cats merch store where you can find such designs as the staff approved Doomtang Clan, Play Sandstorm Cowards, and Neon Alleycats. But most importantly, thank you all for listening to this episode of the Aggieville Alleycats Podcast. Where come rain, shine, or anything in between, we're here to deliver to you the Kansas State sporting news that you so love. Stay safe, alley Cats.